You are listening to Power of Three with podcast hosts Richie Woods and Tom Capone. Lisa Ross is an artist and photographer from New York, currently living and working in the Bronx. Ross has traveled extensively for her work. She had her first museum exhibition at the Rubin Museum of Art, and a book titled Living Shrines was published by the Monicelli Press in 2013. Other exhibitions include Photographiska Museum in Sweden, Les Rencontres d'Arles in France, Brunet Gallery, London, University of California at Berkeley, Harvard University, and La Vielle Charité in France. Ross was commissioned by the Center of Conservation, Restoration, and Preservation in Marseille to create new work in Baku, Azerbaijan. Ross was an artist-in-residence at the Watermill Center and a grantee of the Asian Cultural Council of New York in 2016. Ross's work received reviews in the New York Times, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Art Forum, The Wall Street Journal, and many other print and online journals. Her book has received enthusiastic responses in the New York Review of Books, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and London Review of Books. She is a grantee of the Asian Cultural Council, a Bronx Museum Artist in the Marketplace recipient, and was granted a Haywood residency at the International Summer Academy of Fine Arts, Salzburg, Austria. Ross received the Masters of Fine Arts from Columbia University and a Bachelor of Arts from Sarah Lawrence College. She has taught at Columbia University, Parsons School of Design in New York, and at the Harvey Milk School. Lisa, first, congratulations on all your success. Some artists never get to see the fruits of all their labor. And uh, you're fortunate that at this time in your life, more and more people are recognizing your work for what it is, um, even though it's been great for a very, very long time. Um, You're starting to get a lot of recognition lately. How does that feel? I think it, it always, uh, first of all, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to come. It's our pleasure. Back out to uh, the old neighborhood. Um, and um, it, when you work really hard at something, it always feels good to have people to share it with. Kind of like your podcast, The Power of Three. If it's me and my work it gets kind of boring. But after I take the time to make it, I need to share it. And that sort of completes the experience. Lisa, I'm sorry, I have to just ask this question. Sharing your work, though, is it enough just to share it? Or do you look for feedback or people's responses to your work? Because really, it elicits all kinds of emotions and it evokes all kinds of emotions from the work that I've seen. Um, is that part of what makes it a, a valuable experience for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm actually, the exhibition that's up now at Miyako Yoshinaga Gallery, um, I've made it, um, I, I'm there every Saturday because I love 
talking to people. And in that way, sharing the work is a totally different experience. And um, I actually learn a lot being there. And I feel that I'm able to also um, open up a lot of uh, doors for people so they could experience the work in an even um, deeper way. So I think you're right. I think that, you know, the work being out in the world is one one thing. Um, but really being able to dialogue about it with people um, is much more satisfying and um, really exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about how you entered the field of photography? That's a great question and completely apropos since we're making this podcast in my hometown where I was, where I grew up. Um, because I began really young. Um, I really started falling in love with photography 12, 13 years old. And um, how it just was a combination of other passions that I had as a kid and um, coming from somewhat of a creative family, a dad that was um, a closet writer and a mom that was a painter. Um, I loved theater and acting. And um, for some reason, uh, photography gelled for me, holding a SLR camera and then learning how to print in the darkroom and using the chemicals, it became something that I just so strongly identified with at a very young age. It really became um, a, a passion that I thought, this is it, I found it. Kind of like when you fall in love, except the person can't break up with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And it's been a lifetime love affair, right? Since then, it really has. Uh -huh. <laughs> when you talk about passion, though, Lisa, it really manifests itself in the example that you gave of creating your own darkroom when you were thirteen. Is that true? This is actually a true story. Uh, we had a bathroom in the downstairs, and uh, my mom, you know, I had a little savings from whatever it was that I did for work. Which, P.S., I did everything from carrying bags for women at the supermarket to. Um, all kinds of things to make some change. And I had some money saved up and uh, I read in the penny saver that somebody was selling their dark room for like a hundred bucks. And it turned out to be some like actual distant relative, oddly enough. And um, we went to their house and I picked up all the equipment, went home and I set up uh, my first uh, dark room as a kid. Does that person know that they were an influence in your artistic and creative life i don't think so yeah. i don't even remember which relative it was it was like really like some second or third <laughs> something or other <laughs> that's great yeah so what, what else inspires you as an artist we look for inspiration in everything people places things what has been your inspiration or what was your inspiration initially when you first began as an artist i mean as a kid um slash early teen i i love the idea of photographing um, around my neighborhood from the kids on the block to I'd go to Oil City and um, photograph uh, in those uh, places where there were like uh, rotten cars and garbage and 
Um, I just like, yeah, I just, I I would just, (laughs) I would like the camera was my window. I was, it was almost like I was an early traveler. Like I would, you know, they, my folks let me take the train into Manhattan in high school and I would go in by myself and I'd go to Central Park and photograph and, um, you know, I, it really became, uh, you know, I also was, as I said, I was into theater, but I stopped, I didn't participate in theater in high school, but what I did was I used the camera as a way, sort of like as a way to perform. And, um, and then we also had video back in those days. Remember those two part video cameras with a great VHS, like a separate, like cameras separate from the, mm-hmm. uh, right. from the recorder. So, I mean, I really, um, was using the camera and, and also video as a way to perform, to connect with others and, um, and to have an identity. It was like, um, I didn't love school. Uh, I didn't love, I was just look. I didn't love school and um but I loved creating so it became my kind of world. What were some of the early things that you did photograph? You went to Central Park, was it birds, was it people, was it Definitely people. Right. Yeah, it was really people and um Was it know, wide open you would photograph whatever you wanted or was it did you have interest things you, that were interesting, right. you know, I um I went. I also went here to the boardwalk on Long Beach, and I went into one of the old age homes, and uh, I was I was uh, talking to the elder older people that I guess like a number of them were Holocaust survivors and stuff. So I was making portraits of them, um, and I think I recorded some of their stories. And was, then, that was when you were a teenager. Yeah, that was so when you I was had, a teenager. You had a passion then beyond photography and presentation through video because. Many people who have a passion for photography wouldn't do it the way you've explained it so far, right? Right. I mean, I also was not a good athlete, and I loved photographing sports uh-huh. uh, because it was actually really interesting. But um, it also got me out of sport night. Like, I didn't have to compete. And then I became, like, mildly popular because people <laughs> wanted to, like, buy my photographs, you know? So it was also – it was this very interesting way to – um like self-identify at it, I you know like those those ages like, you know if you're not in some kind of jock group or some like you're not if you don't have your group, and I was really kind of like outside of all the groups, but photography gave me a way to um, uh, feel a sense of self. Mm-hmm. Lisa, I'm going to say that um, another essential ingredient to your success and to the passion that you have. I think comes from the fact that your parents were so willing to support you and to allow you to follow your passion. I think so. I think they, yeah, I think they were like, you know, it was almost like, it was almost a little crazy because when I had that darkroom downstairs, I remember like I needed approval. So I wasn't just like down there doing my own thing all the time. I would like print a photograph, run upstairs, show it to my mom and she'd go, Oh, Oh my God, look at the reflection in his glasses. That's incredible. And then I would be like, I would feel so great. And then I'd run downstairs. That feedback and really I, made a difference. It really, like, I remember the feeling I had when she would say how great each picture was. And, you know, that enthusiasm really um, meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, Knowing your mom, she still has that enthusiasm today. Yeah. You know, and appreciation of art and appreciation of everything you do and her grandchildren and her other daughter, Wendy Woods. <laughs> Lisa, I think I'm quoting you now. Let me know if, if, if I'm not. But have, I think you said that faith is invisible, yet I see the photographs I make as manifestations of it. And art also requires a leap of faith. Is that that's true in all of your work? Sounds yeah. pretty accurate, yeah. actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you want to you know, talk about that and expound upon that? Well, um, I guess if I the the comment about a manifestation of faith um, and faith being invisible, I was really taken. I was really in awe. We're jumping around, so I will give you a location. I'm now in western China in what we call the Uyghur homeland, and I'm in the desert, and I have hired a driver so that I could get into the desert because you can only go so far by bus and train. And I, my driver doesn't speak English. I don't speak his language. And he points into the desert because he has um, kind of gotten an idea of what kind of things I seem to be interested in photographing. So he just points into the the desert, and I think, okay, I guess I'll walk into the desert. Take that leap of faith. (laughs) And, um, And I walk in, and then I slowly start seeing these, like, um, I don't know, things. What? And you have the sand dunes, and then all of a sudden I come upon these um, what looked like wooden rafts uh, with flags, but in the desert, so no water. They looked like skeletons. They looked like a skeleton of Huckleberry Finn's journey. And I was like, what is this? And, um, you know, I came to find out over time that these were um, markers for saints, but I didn't know it at the time. And, um, you know, so, I, you know, we're really jumping ahead. But I ended up spending years photographing in different holy sites throughout this huge region in western China um, known as the Uyghur homeland or um, technically Xinjiang, which means new territory that um, China colonized. Anyway, um, I am in the desert and... I see these objects and I realize when I learn what they are, um, I realize that they are people's expression of faith. So they're something that people will go to and pray. And it's really not that different than, say, going to St. Anthony's on Saturday morning. So we're in China and we're in the desert. And since this is a podcast... I think we better describe what those Uyghur shrines look like in the desert. They're on, I've seen pictures, your pictures, and they're on dunes or within dunes or constructed around dunes. And I've seen weird, well, I shouldn't say weird, but I've seen the heads of birds on some of them and flags and, and very, very colorful. So the pictures look great um, for another reason. And then, also bones I've seen on them too, like skulls and things like that. So you want to take it from there, Lisa? Yeah, I'll take it from there. So <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to draw a quick um, picture so people have an idea of where we are 
in the world. So um, the Uyghur homeland is the furthest uh, west uh, north part of of what's part of China. It's um, south of Mongolia, west of Mongolia. It borders on Mongolia. It's south of Russia. Um, it's south of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. I'm uh, sorry, it's east, forgive me. It's east and borders on all these regions that I'm mentioning. Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, take out your maps, people, uh, Pakistan, and it's north of Tibet. It's one-sixth of China's landmass. It's a huge region. The center, Xinjiang, is sort of split into two parts, north and south. The southern part of the Uyghur homeland is largely desert. It's called the Taklamakan Desert, which I had never heard of before going out there. And since we didn't talk about it yet, I will say that by the time I went to China, I was very kind of obsessed with the desert and had spent time in Sahara and Sinai. So the Taklamakan Desert, which is a huge region, a huge desert, I'd never heard of it. But what's really interesting about this region and about this desert is that this desert is surrounded by mountains on on all sides. So what you get from the mountains are these uh, oasis villages that are getting some irrigation from coming down from the mountains. So surrounding the Taklamakan Desert, there are oasis cities, north, south, east, and west. Also, if you think back through history, the Silk Road went north and south of the Taklamakan Desert. So it was very important, very important trade routes passed through this region into China before it actually was part of China. Um, Okay, so historically, this region, Islam came into the region around the 10th century, became really popularized around the 15th century, 16th century. Prior to Islam, there was Buddhism, Nestorian Christianity, Zoroastrianism, animism. So there were shamanism, there were different religions that were all over this region. So when Islam came in, it was Sufism that really took hold among the population. And the Sufis had holy sites. And the holy site at the holy site, it's there is a person who, while they were alive, has been able to create miracles, maybe cure illness, maybe they were great teachers or poets when they were alive, and when they died, they were recognized as a saint. If they were extremely important and reached far and wide, they'd be a very important saint. And where they were buried would become known throughout the region. But all the villages and oasis cities also had local saints, smaller saints. 
So if you look at the photographs, they are of first a burial marker for a saint, and then the saint is known to be in a state of eternal sleep, and they help the dead transition into the afterlife. So when a family member dies, it's important to the family to bury that person close to the saint. So in a sense, what we consider to be a graveyard is what these holy sites are. The only difference is, which is a pretty big difference, is that they're visited all the time by people that are living close to these sites. Now, some of these sites are really in the desert, so you have to travel quite far. They're not right next to a village. And when you get to those sites, they're quite huge. The markers for the saint that's buried there, often there are numerous saints that'll be buried there. There'll be what's called a Hanukkah, which is a, um, not to be confused with Hanukkah, the Jewish holiday. A Hanukkah is a place for ritual activity. So often people will travel maybe even for days until they get to this holy site that is often in the middle of the desert. And they will bring a sheep or a lamb and they will um, have a ritual uh, killing of this animal. And they will cook the meat and they'll share it with everybody that's come on pilgrimage to this site. And that is why sometimes you'll see the head of the animal marking the uh, tomb of the saint or the burial marker of the saint because often they consider the sheep's head um, to be an important marker and a gift and a, and a marker of their prayer or their wish as are the flags. And so what was what's really interesting about these holy sites that are in the middle of the desert is that People from all around the Taklamakan Desert, north, south, east, and west, would travel sacred routes into the desert to get to a holy site. And it's these very holy sites, according to a book that came out that was published by Ryan Thumb not too long ago called Sacred Roots of the Uyghur, which is actually a sort of scholarly version of my photographic book, if you will, it's an academic book, but it talks about how the Uyghur people and the people of this region were able to create a cohesive identity as a people. Because remember, this is prior to like nations. So how do people self-identify and how do they identify with one another? And it was largely through the sacred roots of the Uyghur, the sacred holy sites. So you have in the, in the book that it, that I published of photographs and in the years that I traveled, which went from 2002 until I was there and recently I went in 2000, this past summer, but particularly for the, from 2002 to 2011, um, it was a lot of what I was doing was getting to these holy sites and then staying there and making these photographs that expressed the holiness of the place. And sometimes those sites were in the middle of the desert, and other times they were in small villages, and other times they were near water, 
and other times they were near trees. So they really varied according to where they were and according to and the um, landscape around them. And they also varied according to north, south, east, west, and what was more traditional in that particular area of how they created a site. So sometimes you'll see rectangular uh, markers, and other times you'll see what you might identify as a teepee-like teepee-like um, marker that's maybe 60 or even 80 feet tall. Lisa, how many times have you been back to China? Um, I, I just... It's almost like I don't count, but I rattle off the years. I mean, a dozen times. I went 2002, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 11, and then again well, in here, 18. Here's where I'm going with this. Is it easier? Was it easier when you first started to go into China to take pictures than it is now? Is it more difficult now? Right. Well, right now, uh, the region that we're talking about, which we're now calling the Uyghur homeland because it seems like the best way to describe this area, um, it is the it's called the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, as it's been named by the Chinese, and it's currently under a very oppressive, oppressive at best um, situation where the Chinese government is largely making the practice of Islam illegal. They, the Chinese government is making the spoken language of the Uyghur people illegal. And they have been, uh, as you mentioned earlier, putting a large number of the population into camps. And we don't really know a lot about these camps. They're called re-education camps. They are sometimes called de-extremification camps. There is a rhetoric by the Chinese government that is labeling the Uyghurs as a terrorist people. What they are is a Muslim people in the world at a time where Islamophobia is easy to support and therefore the Chinese are banking on the fact that the world will support them in their de-Islamification of the Uyghur people. So traveling there now is really difficult, especially as a photographer or as anybody that wants to go around freely and see the place because it's full of police uh, checkpoints and body scanners and surveillance cameras. And it's really a police state right now. And it's very harrowing uh, to travel there. They have group groups of citizens that have to walk around with clubs in groups of seven to keep supposedly to keep the peace and it's just local people that have to do this because their government tells them they have to do this. So it's sort of harrowing to see a group of people walking around with clubs. Um, and you can't really travel freely because just trying to take a train or a bus or something, you have to get 
permission just to go into villages that in the past I could easily go and visit. So it's no longer a place that, and I think the Chinese government is very uncomfortable with uh, people photographing now. Um, so they're also making it very difficult for anybody with a camera, you know, to go in and take photographs. So I don't think, um, I think that what was is no longer. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the sites that um, I spent so many years photographing and in a sense falling in love with because they were such special places and I met so many incredible people. Um, it was never even an issue that I'm Jewish. Like nobody, when I say it was never an issue, I was told many times that we love the Jewish people and, you know, um, we, there's, there, I'd never experienced any kind of fundamental attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, for me, it's very upsetting because I know these sites like in 2013, one place that I had been to many times where every is the first site that I went to that I didn't know what it was. Um, and when I went back, in 2005 with my friend who's from there who um, has been put into prison. Um, she's a professor at the university and she was given a 10-year prison sentence without a trial. Um, she's an intellectual and they have been locking up the intellectuals uh, so they don't speak to what's happening. But my friend and I went to this holy site and in May they have a festival which means we saw we went there at a time where there were thousands of people, tightrope walkers, magicians, uh, wrestling matches, storytellers, mud musicians, uh, food stalls, thing clothing being sold, and then you walk into the desert. So this is like this incredible live ancient ritual that in 2013, even that became illegal to go there on pilgrimage. And so I know even on this last trip that these places are locked up. You can't go into them, the ones that are in the villages. Um, so it's not, it wouldn't be the same to go back now. Mm -hmm. Lisa, I'm sure that it's, um, it's safe to say that over the course of uh, years that you've been traveling back and forth to China, that you've established very meaningful relationships. And you did talk about one in particular. Um, you, you want to talk a little bit more about some of those relationships or about this particular person who really is at the heart of what your exhibit is all about? Uh, yeah, so the first time that I went to China, it was completely... Uh, I had no idea what I was going to find and what I was going to see. Uh, Since I, you're going along that path right now, yeah, that was going to be my question. You can, we can kill two birds maybe because I want to know like at what point you go there as a, as a photographer, you discover the shrines, you start taking those pictures. At what point do you learn about the Uyghur people being oppressed or at what point did, you know, do you get this education on the Uyghur people too? Oh, that, that happened slowly. Yeah. Yeah. That happened slowly. When I first went out to the, that region, um, my friends were shooting Kill Bill in Beijing 
And I said, I, I had, as I said, I had been to Egypt and Morocco and I had, was very interested in the desert. This is now post 9-11. Uh, Father Michael, who was the chief, the head priest of the New York City Fire Department right, and yeah. the number one victim in 9-11 mm-hmm. is someone that I was fortunate enough to cross paths with. He was an incredible man. Um, he was a gay man and a priest. So, and a priest for the New York City Fire Department and a really good soul. And when I was traveling, I actually considered him a saint for myself. And I, he said a prayer that he wrote down and that people published. And I actually, for whatever reason, I would repeat that prayer the whole time that I was traveling because I was afraid. And but I kept had this nagging feeling. Keep is, going. Is the prayer a long prayer? No. I mean, could you tell us what it was right yeah. now? Take me where you want me to go. Show me what you want me to see. Tell me what you want me to say and help me stay out of your way. Okay, that's a cheat. He actually said, (laughs) take me where you want me to go. Show me who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say and help me stay out of your way. But as a visual artist, I changed it. (laughs) (laughs) Poetic life. (laughs) And so I, I had this feeling that he, not that he was with me, but I kind of took him with me. Uh, and so, and that was part of the nagging voice that said, keep going, keep going. And then when I ended up in the middle of when this driver dropped me off at the edge of the desert and I still didn't know it was a holy site, what I was going to say is before I went out to this region, I was told by people that were working on the movie set not to go there, that it was dangerous and that these were dangerous people. And I sort of didn't believe it intuitively. And I actually, in all my years traveling there, I never had one negative experience ever, which is kind of amazing. So it took me time to learn about the Uyghur people and the oppressive situation. I actually really didn't know a lot. Um, Yeah. And Tom was asking you about uh, relationships, the relationship, the relationships that. that you established. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I had these great relationships. The reason being, when I went, when I was leaving the region the first time, I met this French scholar of Central Asian Islam. He's basically like a guy in his thirties that was finishing his PhD, and he was out in this region to read original manuscripts in the language of the Uyghur people at some like library or center. And I was so blown away by that. And I told him I had all these notes people had written to me in the Uyghur language, which is an Arabic script. And he was able to tell me what they wrote, these little notes. And then I told him about this place that I went. And for a year, he, we emailed each other and he explained to me what this place was that I had visited when I sent him photographs. So he and I went back together two years later, because I understood with him, I would really get to find these places because he told me there were hundreds of them, but he had never been. He had only been to this one big popular one. And the one that I went to was really remote. And he hadn't been to any of these very remote places, but he wanted to go. When we went, when I went with him, the first thing we did was go to a bookstore in a small city and buy a book written by Rahila Dawood, who later on becomes became my friend 
And how she became my friend is after he and I traveled together that summer, we had her book and there was her little picture in the book. It had just been published maybe a year or two prior. When we got home, I found out that she was going to, in my memory, it was my mom <laughs> that told me there's a conference in London. It couldn't have been, but that's how it goes in my memory. And um, so I find out Rahil is speaking at a conference in London and at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies, there's a Uyghur conference. Maybe my mom heard in that NPR. It's actually a possibility. So I contacted the organizer and I asked her if we could go and give a presentation of my photographs and Alex, Alex's scholar, Alex would speak to the subject matter. And we got a 20 minute coffee break. She said, well, we have a 20 minute coffee break. If you want to do your presentation, then you're welcome to come. So we went and then, and there was Rahila. And when she saw my photographs and she saw the condition that her book was in, she couldn't believe that two foreigners made it out there, used her book and actually, went to all these holy sites, she was completely blown away. And she said, Oh, my God, I, I can't believe it. And, you know, I have to teach my students photography for field work. How would you like to come out and travel with me? And I can take you to places that he never took you. It's sort of like when, when your mom was validating your work for you when you were a 12 or 13 yeah. photographer, you're validating her work. And it must have been so meaningful for her that she offered that invitation to you. Yeah, it was incredible. So she and I traveled together that summer. And um, I, it was really funny because I said the first year that I was there and I photographed beds, which is actually the the exhibition that's up now. There are no holy sites. They're all beds. And we haven't even touched on the beds. Mm -hmm. Maybe we have to we'll do the whole there. thing over again. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna, beds that are, but the bed, so the first year that I went, the first day or first couple of days when I got off of the, you know, it was a four-day train, and then I f had to get off and, you know, what felt like the middle of nowhere. I always joke when I say that because I know people actually live in the middle of nowhere. And um, I had to figure out, get on a minibus, and then get to this place that I was going. And while I was there, I photographed these beds in the middle of a field with the blankets blowing. And I, I don't know. I said one, when I go, when I, when I was in my dark room after that first visit, I thought, Oh my God, it's really a bed and it's really in the middle of a field. How could that be? So when I went back, I thought I have to get back to that village and find that bed and uh -huh. photograph it. <laughs> so when I went back to that area, I was like, Oh my God, there are beds everywhere it's not like one bed it's like beds everywhere what's going on and then i came to find out that traditionally in Torpan, which is the region the area the kind of prefecture of this whole region it's one area um it's so hot in the summer months that it's become tradition that every almost everybody sleeps outdoors for the summer and if they have a lot of land they put their bed out on their land or if they are raisins or the big grapes but okay so turpan is so hot however they have this like incredible ancient irrigation system which allows for apparently the best grapes in all of central asia to grow and they're famous for their raisins 
Not wine. Not their wine. (laughs) 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 Um, And so in the summer months, when they're harvesting uh, grapes, they're also drying raisins. So some people are living out in these extremely dry fields where they are constantly spreading out and moving and aerating these raisins so that, um, in fact, they're not very close to their home, but they sleep out in these fields where their beds are. And I was particularly attracted to what seemed like random beds in the middle of these very kind of dreamlike landscapes. And it felt to me the first time that I saw them that they were as if I was walking in my own dream, but it was actually there for me to see. I didn't have to close or open my eyes. And so for me, the beds were poetry, where the shrines were this whole world, and it was dense. So every year that I went, I would spend three or four days just photographing beds in the landscape in this region, and it was like my poetry, my project for myself separate from the shrines, which was this much more, what I saw is this much more dense, big project. And how many years ago was that? Or is that over several visits that you took pictures of these beds? Oh, yeah. over Every year I photographed mm-hmm. the beds, so starting in 2002. Um, the beds in the exhibition, right now the exhibition, I Can't Sleep, Homage to a Uyghur Homeland, all the beds in those photographs were those images were made in 2006 and 2007. So Lisa, this is a good time to maybe go into a little more detail about the exhibit that is now on display in Manhattan. Um, why, don't, why don't you talk about that? I was invited to uh, Miyako Yoshinaga, who's the gallery owner, asked if I would show photographs of beds with their owners in these landscapes. It was a body of work. I had exhibited a body of work of beds in the landscapes about four years ago in an exhibition called after night, but there were no actual, the human figure was not there. There were no people. I wasn't very comfortable showing photographs of Uyghur people. However, Miyako saw one of them in my studio, and she asked if I had more, and I did. And she asked if I would have an exhibition of that work, and I felt that at this point in time, it was important to show Uyghurs, their faces, their bodies, their culture. And I could let go of all the things that were holding me back from showing that work. They're very beautiful photographs and Moments in time in terms of the landscape, in terms of these beds largely, which are handmade, in terms of the material on the beds, which people use and often are handmade, and the clothing and the pride in people's faces. And the I thought they were really beautiful photographs. However... Not however, in addition, I felt that I needed to somehow address what's happening today. So the first thing that we could talk about and describe would be the actual photographs of people on their beds. Some are on rooftops, some are out in more barren fields. 
the women are all in a state of contemplation. The children are in a state of play. There are no men in the photographs. It's a small gallery, and I wanted to create a certain feeling. Right now, there are more men that are being put into the camps than women. Women are sometimes left home to care for children. I wanted to create a feeling of all the men being gone and the women waiting and the children sort of playing or being occupied as we would do with children when something terrible is happening. And so I wanted to create that feeling in the space. When I made the photographs, in reality, I had no idea any of this was going on. So it was in the editing that I was able to create this feeling. In reality, when I photographed the women, I was talking to them about dreaming. What were their dreams? I asked them to think about what they dreamt about, to imagine their dream life. And so when I made the photographs, there's a look on a lot of the women's faces that they're in this state of contemplation. This is done through a translator? Well, you asked about my relationships. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> when I wanted to photograph Beds and Rahila and I traveled together, she laughed and said she wasn't really interested <laughs> in going with me to photograph the Beds, but that she would have a student go with me. And her students were all master's degree students, and they had to learn English. They had to, um, for their exams, if they wanted to get a PhD, they actually had to pass an English exam. And it was great for them to travel, and it was great for me to travel with somebody. So I went um, with her student that year. And then the years to follow, when I went back, I always traveled all over with um, – there were two different students that I traveled with, and they became really good friends of mine. It never felt like I had a translator. Mm -hmm. And um, this student that I traveled with, we would stay at her family's homes in the city, her family's home in the countryside. And these are people that today I would normally have had dinner with and spent days with when I went back this summer, but now it's impossible to communicate with anybody. Mm -hmm. It's dangerous for them if they're not already in a camp mm -hmm. or something, it would, it would be terrible for them if they were found to be with a foreigner, because right now that's considered a reason to put somebody in a camp. If you have relationships with people abroad and so certainly these people that you do have an established relationship with and you have, a, and you care for them. You, you, you have no idea what's, what's happened to them. I have no idea. And my friend who Rahila, I'm in a lot of communication with her daughter who has yet not spoken out. Mm -hmm. Her Rahila brought her to um, here to get her uh, master's in business. And now she's working full time, but she hasn't yet spoken out because her, other family members are not in a camp or prison. She's able to speak to her grandmother every week or so, which is unusual. Has anybody but, ever approached you then to speak um, for the Uyghur people? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I posted on Facebook that if anybody wanted to do testimonials that I would help out. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working with a guy now in Germany. He's done so a lot of there's a hashtag we to Uyghur movement, which um, the person in Germany was he's a refugee. He, he, he's Uyghur. Uh -huh. And um, he so I just want to say there's there Uyghurs are doing testimonials to talk about their family members who have disappeared, but they're in Uyghur. They're not in English. So we can't understand them. And I think it's really important. And they're doing important. them anonymously? No, they're doing it. Doesn't that pose more of a threat yeah, or a concern that. for them? Yeah, but they don't care anymore because they feel that if they don't start, that's why they started the hashtag Me Too Uyghur mm -hmm. movement mm -hmm. because they feel a little funny about it because they realize they're like glumming onto something. That's not the right word, but they're whatever, mm -hmm. attaching themselves to something that's been used in a particular way. They haven't yet found a better terms so they have hashtag me too Uyghur and they're using that to meet in different public spaces and do testimonials and talk to their family members who have disappeared there's a website online called shahit.biz that's was started by a, an american guy who has why don't you spell that in case s-h-a-h-i-t dot biz and it was started by this incredible Dot man. B I Z. Yeah, incredible man named Gene Bunin, and he has he has basically sworn to do nothing but help the Uyghurs until this situation is over. Mm -hmm. okay. where, where, does he, where does he live? Well, right now he's based in Kazakhstan. So let's go back to the let's stay in the United States now. Is there the United States has made a statement via the UN condemning? what's happening but is it really have they i that's what i read in oh. in the business uh i think it was the business week article um that was recently out okay but i but again like you might know better than i but my question really is is there any kind of a ground swelling here yes yes and, so there's a guy here so when i had the exhibition um on day three a family showed up whose father was given a 15-year prison sentence, and he was with his mom. She came back to visit him. He was at U of P, University of Pennsylvania. During that time, his dad was taken away, and he's now been given a 15-year prison sentence. His crime was that he was working on textbooks for high school students in the Uyghur language, mm -hmm. Period. Okay. Are there people so he are... asked me, we, he and I have been speaking. He would like, he spoke at the gallery for the first time publicly about his dad. He never spoke out before. And now he wants to do a testimonial in English about his dad. So, are there, are there people that are non Uyghurs in the United States beside yourself that are, you know. Absolutely. I mean, this is like the reason that. For those people that are following this, articles are coming out almost every week. There's an unbelievable uh, I think there was three this week. precedence of scholars such as Ryan Thumb, Darren Byler, Joshua Freeman, Gene Bunin, who I mentioned before. There's a group of what's called Xinjiang Concerned Scholars. Uh, sorry, Jim Millward. They are aggressively trying to get 
the word out about what's happening. So that's it hasn't really hit in a political way. Like no one is aggressively seeking their legislators or senators. They're, everybody's they are, trying. But it's all right. So but these guys are mostly through the printed word trying to spread the information and out. Also trying to work through legislation. Um, the Uyghur, there's the Uyghur Human Rights Project, and they're trying to pass something called the, I'm going to say it wrong, but Meninsky Act. I know I'm saying it wrong. It, they're trying to pass legislation. It's very tricky. Wait. Um, Magninsky Act. Uyghur Human Rights Project. Where? Um, in the United States, which, if I understand correctly, it'll create a situation where... People from the Uyghur diaspora who are being threatened by Chinese politicians or police to not speak to what's happening, that they can't do that in this country, mm-hmm. that the, the Chinese will be responsible for that if they th- are threatening people in this country. I'm really sorry that I don't actually, I can't quote what the Magnins- Magninsky Act will do i should be able to do that but i don't mm-hmm. can't all of this is going on um you know where they're looking to balance the political aspect of this the human rights aspect also taking into account the economics at the heart of what's going on over there isn't it really have to do doesn't this have to do with the economy of the of the area yes largely probably i think the i think that it we could say it's like i want to say 50% racism, 50% economics, but it might be 80% economics, 20% racism. And the kind of oppression that we're seeing is largely related to the Belt and Road Initiative that Xi Jinping has initiated, which is basically world expansion through uh, roads that will be built from the uh, Uyghur homeland region which is also the wealthiest region in all of China in terms of natural gas, oil, and minerals that mm. they have yet taken out of the land. There's a pipeline that's being built between wow. uh, Xinjiang and Kazakhstan. There are roads that are train lines that are being planned that'll go past Central Asia and into Europe. We're talking trillions of dollars. We're talking, yeah, and... The article that was published in the New York Review of Books by Jim Millward really focuses on the surveillance, how much surveillance has been invest, how much investment has been made in terms of surveillance and technology in this region. Wow. And that it's almost a testing ground for the future of other parts of China, such as Taiwan and Hong Kong, that are not completely submissive to Xi Jinping. It's almost as if Trump suddenly had the ability to say, guess what, guys? It's not an eight, four-year term. It's not an eight-year term. It's a life term. And then he was somehow or another given eternal life. (laughs) (laughs) So they take these people who are living, you know, as as a solid group for so many years, and their lives mean 
nothing and their culture means nothing and their religion means nothing. Centuries, yeah. And it all has, well, a lot of it has to do with just the money and the resources in the area. Let's get rid of these people. It's like in our country we have eminent domain, but it's not, it's kind of rare these days for it to be used. In, uh, and, and also I remember when studying the uh, Ganges uh, River and the Three Gorges Dam, where they, I think they also, when they built that dam in China, it was the same thing. They uprooted anybody that lived near there, and you just go ahead, go I mean, live wherever you want to live. Sad they, to it's say, sad. but it, we did it with the Native Americans, and we're still right. doing it. We still haven't given them back their land. We're, you know what I mean? On the southern border, it's happening, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Well, the, <laughs> if you want to go back that far, well, the southern border. Um, wasn't wasn't our southern border? It was right. the, the land was Mexico's land, uh, all of California, and you know a big chunk of the rest. So, so yeah, our what we did with Native Americans, we destroyed their languages, their peoples, their cultures, their communities. We wanted their land. It's sadly similar. Mm-hmm. And and it's a lesson that wasn't learned. You know, it was. You know, you still greed and money, you know, it's still... uh, Comes down to money. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, it's almost like we never learn. Or it's just like inherent in our existence that there will always be evil and there will always be good. Mm -hmm. Lisa, let's go back to your exhibit, if we can. Maybe we can uh, close up with a little bit more of a focus on on the exhibit and, and what it's meant to you and the kind of reaction that you've gotten from those who have been there to, to see your incredible work. Well, one and, other and you're, thing, you're sitting with two people who have seen your incredible right. work, by the way. And I want to say that it's um, for the people who may hear this and have a shot at going to see mm-hmm. the exhibit, it's your photographs, but it's also, reading. will it be readings of poetry and will it still be song and dance there? No, oh, so you saw that and got Tom lucky. didn't get to oh, see that. Okay. So very a very important part of the exhibition uh, due to life and a lack of funding or whatnot, we only could have the performative interventions the first three days of the exhibition. And to me, that was the heart and soul of this exhibition. And when I agreed to have this exhibition with Miyako, it was at a time that Mukadas Majit, who's a very dear friend of mine, collaborator, she is born in this region. She lives in France. She is now a French citizen. And she said to me, do the exhibition and we'll find a way to talk about what's happening. And I did that in part through the mural of Rahila, which is in the gallery, which was made up of photographs repeated of her over and over again at work doing her ethnographic research. And then there's an art, the article that one of the photographs are in in the New York Times that tells about her disappearance. But the really important part of the exhibition that could only be there for the first three days were the performative interventions that Mukadas created in honor of the disappeared. So she chose for a musician, Sanubar Torsun, a novelist, Perhat Torsun, no relation, a writer and poet, Chimengul Aout, and then Rahila Dawut. 
And for the, each person, she created a different performative intervention. She worked in collaboration with my friend Anthony Varali, who's a painter and a musician. They worked together on these performative interventions. We got a mini residency at the Watermill Center out in Long Island, and we spent a week creating these works. I worked with them. I was doing a lot of administrative work as the exhibition was coming up. I played the role of a performative translator and the introducer of each piece, but each piece involved the viewers so that they had the experience of a Uyghur body in the room alive where there was an exchange of voice, eyesight, and there was a connection. Mm -hmm. I was there, I remember. And so it was very moving. People was. cried. Right. Uh, the Uyghur community cried. There were tears Luke at your cried. There were tears at your exhibition also, from not just the people who were you know a big part of it, but from people who went there um, just to see the photographs. And I think they were they got caught up. And I there were tears that night when I was there. Yeah, people weren't expecting and. You know, we were so focused on the creation, we never thought of, like, the response. But the response to the exhibition has been so emotional and so moving. People are leave there having learned and felt in a way that I don't think anyone has expected. Mm -hmm. And the performative interventions, moving forward, I won't do another exhibition without at least doing my best to collaborate, hopefully, with Mukadas, because I think we have now built up a rapport and a relationship that I really want to keep working together because I think it's the most effective way to speak to what's happening. And she's a powerful artist, performer, filmmaker. She has a PhD. She speaks about seven languages. And she's a beautiful soul and person. And a really important, I think, even though she doesn't want to be a voice for the Uyghur people, she really is through art. A couple more things along that same line. But first, you can hear the passion in Lisa Ross's voice tonight. But if you were sitting here with me and Tom and watching her, just the way she looks and her appearance and her emotion, um, it really shows through, too, that this is a very important thing to you. And the question that I have for my last question, but I'm not sure you can even answer, but it involves a prediction. Do you have an idea, maybe, of any kind of a resolution in the future. I oh, mean, yeah, totally. as more and more people, more and more countries seem, I mean, they're at least climbing on board in principle right now. Maybe not so much in action, but many countries and many Muslim countries are, well, not, I mean, maybe many is the wrong word, but Pakistan and, and Turkey, where there are Muslims, are, you know, they've made statements. Is it going to be action or is it going to be statements? What do you see for the future? Is there hope? Yes, I see hope because I'm that's mm -hmm. in my nature. And what I imagine is at some point China the government in China is going to realize that what they're doing 
is embarrassing that what they could be doing is letting these people is letting the Uyghurs have their lives and their culture and their families. Every people are resilient. Even though the Native American community was destroyed, they're still there. I'm hoping that the Uyghurs don't go, that the Chinese don't go that far with the Uyghurs. I'm hoping that the world speaks up and that this community is allowed to thrive and be who they are. I'm really banking on never again being something that we take to heart and that more and more the word gets out about what's happening and that the Uyghur holy sites can thrive again, that the marketplaces can thrive again, that there'll be some economic upward mobility and it's not a terrible thing to think that things can be okay. <laughs> um, and so I am imagining that there will be an end to this. And I'm imagining that we keep talking about what's happening and that we find ways to show that what's happening right now is not okay. And it's just a matter of finding the Achilles heel to let the Chinese government see their own mistakes that, and that it's okay to change. Mm -hmm. Lisa, I, I would like to just uh, wrap things up also by saying that uh, I, I think I'm quoting you again. Um, you, you said that art is created in a spiritual dimension where the artist is channel. I think that you said that. Um, I read a lot in the last couple of days um, but I, I really do believe that the work that you've done, your, your, your pictures, um, have been a conduit for us, for all of us, everybody who's seen it, into what is going on and uh, giving us some insights that we wouldn't have had about what's happening. And we need to have that knowledge because without that, nothing's going to happen. So I thank you for your contributions in that regard and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. This was great. This was yeah. great. <laughs> Thank you. All right. like to re remind you, our Power of Three listeners, that you can contribute to the overtime episode by submitting questions or comments to the voice message feature at anchor.fm or our email rtwtmc at gmail.com. Thank you.